0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Hello, everyone. We'll start as usual with a guided meditation. You're welcome to post questions in the chat anytime, and they'll be collected, and
1: then we'll answer them during the second part of the broadcast.
0: If you don't have a question, or once you've posted your question, just close your eyes and meditate with us. So we start by focusing on the abdomen. Just sit sit comfortably. If you want, you can sit with your legs crossed, back upright, face forward. And just notice that when you breathe in, there's an expanding of the abdomen. And when you breathe out, there's a contraction. Don't try and control it or adjust it or anything like that. Just experience it as it happens. When it expands, in English we call that rising. When it contracts, falling. So we just say to ourselves, rising, falling. Or if you're not a native English speaker, you can note in whatever language, whatever the experience is in your language. Just as a means of keeping your mind objective and focused and clearly aware of the experience. You don't say the word out loud, you say it in the mind. Put the mind with the experience and just repeat to yourself, rising, falling in time with the experience. As you're focused on the stomach rising and falling, you'll notice that there are many other experiences that distract you from that, you know, from the physical. So try and just note those experiences as well. For example, if you feel
1: pain, or if you feel calm, or if you feel happy, this is called
0: Vedana. This is base, basic types of feeling. Pleasure, pain, calm. And in mindfulness, none of this is considered a distraction.
1: It's considered a valid object of meditation. So if your mind focuses on the experience of the pain or the calm or the pleasure, just take that as the object and find a word for it. And repeat that word to yourself instead. For
0: example, pain, pain, pain. Or if you feel happy, say happy, happy. If you feel calm, say calm, calm. And just stay with the experience as long as it lasts. Once it's gone, go back to the stomach and continue on with the rising and falling. Another common distraction, of course, is thoughts. So you'll find yourself thinking about the past, the future, good thoughts, bad thoughts, all kinds of thoughts. The object of meditation isn't to stop you from thinking.
1: It's the nature of the mind to think. All we're trying to do is purify our experiences. It's like a filter to remove the judgment and the reaction and the extrapolation from the equation. So thoughts are just thoughts, whether they're past, future, good or bad. And we just remind ourselves of that. The thought is happening here and now. It's just an experience.
0: Keep us from suffering or stressing about the thought. So we just say to ourselves, thinking, thinking. And you can also be mindful of the state of mind. So if you
1: do react to something, if you have some quality of mind, liking or disliking, you can note that as well. Liking, liking, or disliking, disliking. Just stay with it until it goes away and then go back to the rising, falling.
0: If you have any emotion in the mind, frustration, boredom, sadness, depression, fear. Just find a word for what you're experiencing and try
1: to see it just as an experience. Remind yourself, liking or disliking or bored or sad. Just repeat the word to yourself and it keeps you focused on the actual experience rather than getting carried
0: away by it or feeding it or exacerbating it, turning it into a problem. If you feel drowsy, you can note drowsy or tired. If you feel restless or
1: anxious or worried, you can note worried, anxious, restless. If you're distracted, if your mind is not focused and you're thinking a lot, you can say distracted, distracted. If you have
0: any doubt or confusion or doubting, doubting or confused, confused. And finally, the last part of the exercise
1: is to focus on the senses. So seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling. You can note these at any time that they arise. If you see something, even with your eyes closed, you might see pictures or videos, or you might see lights or colors. So just say to yourself, seeing, seeing. Don't get excited about them. attached to them liking or disliking them. Just try and see them as seeing, seeing. If you hear a sound in the room around you or in your mind, some music maybe or some sound, just say hearing, hearing.
0: Smelling or tasting. If you feel something on the body, say feeling, feeling.
1: All in all, just try and be mindful of whatever it is that you experience without any judgment or reaction or extrapolation. Just trying to see everything for what it is. All in all, we're just trying to create a clear state of mind and let the wisdom come by itself. Not trying to create any intellectual wisdom. We're just trying to see clearly. You'll be able to see how your mind works. You'll be able to see what's causing stress and suffering. And you'll slowly, slowly change your habits as you
0: see the mistakes you're making. You'll just make them less and less. All right, so that's our brief guided meditation
1: as a start for the session. You can continue to stay mindful throughout the session if you have questions, continue to post them. But from here on, the chat will be closed to conversation, so anything that's not a question will be removed without prejudice.
0: And we'll start to answer the questions from here on. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. When
2: noting, does the wording matter, or is it all about trying to be present, such as when eating? Should I note eating or tasting?
1: Depends what you experience. If you experience the taste, you'd say tasting. Eating is more the experience. Eating is a little bit vague, so you might want to try something like chewing or swallowing. But um, the words are important or useful, first in terms of how they evoke in the mind a sense of recognition. So what we're trying to evoke is is sati. And sati, the the proximate cause of sati, is something called tirasanya, which is, tira means firm and sanya is perception so when you perceive something and you the the act of reaffirming that perception evokes mindfulness so when we say to ourselves tasting uh, it it pulls at the mind even just in order to say it you have to be uh, firm in your perception you have to be focused on the perception of the taste so even in order to to just say it but and the the other thing that the words do is keeps the mind uh, stable so keeps it from wavering because when you say to yourself tasting yeah, it firms the mind on the actual experience sort of dispelling any potential for distraction or extrapolation or judgment the mind that wants to react to the experience is overruled by the
0: yeah,
1: Act of focusing, of of determining in the mind that this is not good, not bad, this is tasting.
0: So you try and make it close to what you're actually experiencing. I usually use your meditation
2: technique every day. Would combining this with other meditation techniques I did previously potentially hinder progress it's hard to
1: say it depends sort of on what the meditation technique is but um well mixing can dilute the power of of a technique Uh, it's more complicated because you're trying to cultivate multiple things at once Um, it has a potential
0: for uh, distortion because it um involving
1: potentially two different ideas or two different frames of mind it can send the mind on a third state of frame of mind because the mind can only be in one state at once right so if you're going to develop a specific state uh, sometimes the complexity and the the mixing of ideas can lead the mind to some kind of completely different idea like you'll see this with meditation techniques that do mix and i've criticized this before, um, you, you, there's in Thailand. I think, especially in Thailand, there's this um, trend sort of of using a mantra, but the mantra is something unrelated to what you're actually focusing on. So, when you say to yourself, for example, "Buddho, Buddho," your "Buddho" is a word for the Buddha, but people use that when focusing on the breath, which is wrong because the breath is not Buddha. It, the breath is the breath, right? So it creates this complexity, and you see in some of the writings by people who, by teachers in this these sorts of traditions who uh, start to get um, wrong ideas, as far as I can see, in terms of the breath being being the Buddha, or the breath, in, you know, Buddha meaning one who knows. So they, they talk about the one who knows that you experience when you focus on the breath. And it's really way out there because it's, the idea of one who knows as 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 a being is is against Buddhism, and uh, totally unrelated to the intention of of each meditation focusing on the Buddha and or focusing on the breath. They have specific um, purposes,
0: and neither one is to give you some idea of of a, of a Buddha inside you. On the other hand, there are certain meditations that can be supportive.
1: So you wouldn't do them at the same time as practicing satipatthana, but you can use them as a sort of auxiliary, like um, I've talked about these, like um, metta-friendliness meditation, uh, mindfulness of death, mindfulness of the Buddha, actually mindfulness of the Buddha, and mindfulness of the loathsome parts of the body or the the non-beautiful parts of the body these have specific purposes they counter certain uh, extreme
0: states in the mind tempering our volatile emotions should you specify
2: the feeling you experience for example if there is anxiety, should I say anxiety, or should I say feeling? Sometimes I'm not even sure what the feeling is.
1: You should be able to separate feeling from anxiety. We, In English, we talk about things like anxiety as being feelings, but it's pretty inaccurate and and not very useful. Anxiety is anxiety, but probably some of the confusion is that you're you're identifying your feelings with ang- with the anxiety and they're not the feelings that you have you'll notice that they're mostly just physical so there'll be pressure tension in the body and you think oh that's anxiety but it's not the anxiety is one thing and the anxiety can trigger or exacerbate physical tension uh things like physical tension heart beating headaches etc but they're distinct so feeling is a word that we use to fo- to specify Uh, The physical tension, pressure, hardness, softness, heat, cold, uh, and, and anxiety is something different. Anxiety is pretty fleeting. So just don't confuse the two. Anxiety is anxiety, and the feelings related to
0: anxiety are physical, and they're just feeling. A long time ago, I lied. Guilt repeatedly comes up in
2: meditation, and I keep saying to myself, guilt, guilt. Is it beneficial to tell the truth to the person I lied to, even if this happened long ago?
1: It can be beneficial. I wouldn't say it's a solution. Uh, The solution is we're trying to go deeper with mindfulness. We're trying to change our perspective on our experiences, to, to just experience them as they are, rather than trying to fix them or change them so rather than trying to find a way to fix what you perceive as a problem just try and gain a better relationship to it so you're just seeing it as it is i mean some of these are very deep and going to take a long time to really overcome and that that's not what we should be focused on mindfulness as a practice is not focused on that it's focused on seeing things as they are rather than fixing them so even if you have to repeatedly feel guilty don't see that as a as a deficiency or as a failure in meditation. Uh, the the success comes from when you can note the guilt, and and get a a, st- a sense or a perspective on it, um, where where you no longer need to get rid of it or you're no longer upset by it. Guilt is maybe not the best noting. Try and zero in on what you're actually feeling. It might be a disliking or a fear.
0: Or a worry, anxiety, it can be all those things. Do I break any of the precepts by refusing to give money to a friend in need who has a gambling problem?
1: So in Buddhism we have 5 precepts and we have 8 precepts and we have 10 precepts and monks have 227 precepts and bikunis have 311 precepts and none of them relates to refusing to give something to someone uh refusing to give something to someone it can be problematic because uh, it it creates unwholesome states of stinginess and greed and um it can lead to a cruelty, a feeling of cruelty, maliciousness in the mind, like you don't care if someone is suffering or so on. So uh, usually it's better actually to give people when they're in need, but it's hard to do that. It can be quite hard. So it's it's kind of like a uh, an exceptional practice. You have to ask yourself how far you're willing to let go and eventually, if you're willing to let go of everything, if you really want to become free from suffering, you have to really let go of everything. And then it can involve just giving up everything when people ask. I think it's not probably, practically speaking, the right practice to just give up everything unless you've made some kind of vow like santara, to just give up everything. But generally speaking, you should default to giving people things and then. Um, When you're not able to or when you see a real practical reason not to, then you start to say, no, this just isn't going to be beneficial. Like if someone has a drug problem and they ask you for money and you know they're just going to spend it on drugs or or a gambling problem, you know they're just going to spend it on more gambling. I think practically speaking, you probably don't give to that person. It's just, um, it's hard to live like that. And as I said, the only way you can really do it is if you've really decided to just give up everything. And anytime anyone asks, you just give, give until you're bankrupt, until you're living a monk's life, basically. I mean, basically the the only way to make it work is with having a plan to ordain where you're just ready to give up everything and, and go forth. Living in the world... I would say you have to be a little more discriminating. You should still generally give. It's generally good to give. And you, and I think practically the best way to do that is to give in moderation. So when people need something, you may not give them what they want, but you give them something. Right? The person needs so much money while you give them as much money as you're comfortable giving them, for example. As much money as you feel is appropriate. Because maybe there are other people who need the money, or the money could be used for better
0: things. You have to be most careful. I think the the real problem only comes when you're stingy,
1: when you're doing it out of a sense of, of uh, cruelty. You have no compassion for the person or no consideration. You should think of it as a consideration. Consider that the money isn't yours. Try and have a sense that this money isn't yours. You've been put in, in temporary stewardship of the money. Uh, and so you have to consider what is the best use of this money. Rather than no, it's mine. I I worked for this. You you don't I don't have to give you anything, kind of thing. Yeah. So when someone asks for the money, you have to, as a good steward, ask yourself. Well, here's someone with as much right over this money as I have. And so, as the steward, I have to see. You know, is this a proper requisition for this money? Think of it like that. You know, have no sense of possessiveness or greed or anything. Just think of it as a very um, impersonal transaction, and you can be you can live free from greed and and attachment and also worry. But then you might say, "Wait a minute! So if I give him all this money, then I don't have enough food to eat, and and without enough food to eat, that's going to make my life pretty hard. And and then then how can I practice, or how can I do this? How can I feed my children, or you know, how can I go to work?
0: So that's not proper. And you think, oh, that's just not the right thing to do." Is noting the end goal, or
2: when one has been noting for a long time and is able to be present without the act of the mind, should this person still note?
1: The end goal is Nibbāna, the end goal is freedom from suffering. And if you haven't reached that yet, then well, you still have to work. So any other goal, any other stat- state that you come to, Unless you're clear that you've experienced Nibbana and you're now an Arahant, then you still have work to do. And yes, uh,
0: we consider that to be uh, meaning that you still have to note. Is noting loneliness counterproductive?
1: You mean, will it make you more lonely? Um, I don't know. I don't know exactly. It, it sounds like there's some um, heavy assumptions associated with this question. Some it's it's a weighted question. Like um, if if we just take out the word lonely, right? Loneliness, right, is noting counterproductive. Doesn't make any sense. I mean, we're we're promoting it, and we're claiming that it is. Um, it is not counter to its own goal right and i don't that i don't see how that has anything to do with loneliness unless somehow you think that the goal is to be um that somehow the goal is to fix the loneliness and noting isn't about fixing things noting is about seeing things more clearly the fixing is come comes by it comes as a result of the clarity that comes from noting, so you have to get it out of your head that you're trying to fix things like loneliness, even though that seems that seems counterintuitive and that seems kind of um, detrimental to any kind, like any promotion of mindfulness. Well, if mindfulness doesn't fix anything, it's not that mindfulness doesn't fix anything. It's that it's a multiple-step process. Mindfulness isn't about fixing things. It's about getting a better perspective on things like loneliness. So if the question is, does does noting make you more lonely? Or does, does noting get you further from the goal of being free from loneliness? Um, the, the the problem with the question again is that that's that's not our focus when we're being mindful and if it is your focus then you're not being mindful if your focus is on getting rid of the loneliness and you've moved away from being mindful and you've moved towards controlling clinging uh, judging reacting no. but the the abstract in the abstract in the theoretical in the intellectual uh noting has the inevitable result of freeing you from things like loneliness, uh, because the eventual clarity of mind leads to a better perspective on situations that would be tr- that would trigger loneliness, and then those situations no longer trigger loneliness,
0: uh, as an example Sometimes, when meditating, a strong feeling arises, and I say feeling,
2: feeling, but then there occurs a burning sensation by the heart, (laughs) where the feeling is. Should I say burning sensation or feeling?
1: You could say burning, but I would probably tend to just say feeling. Note any reaction you might have to it, liking or disliking. If it really feels hot, you can say hot,
0: hot. Burning is a little bit uh, 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 conceptual.
1: The feelings aren't, it's one way we describe feelings, but the feelings aren't really burning.
0: It might be hot or it might be unpleasant, that sort of thing. How do I pick the right word for noting?
2: You often advise to be specific, but where do I draw the line for judgment? For example, you instruct to note pain, but that could also be a type of feeling
1: not really um we think of that i've already s- sort of answered this question but feelings are just feelings that's just a phys- that's a word best used to describe a physical sensation pain is quite clearly pain and the bigger the bigger problem comes from the um confusing of the two because they're related right feelings can often evoke pain but pain is not really feeling. Feeling is just, the, the, the again, the physical sensation. Pain is quite distinct. And the experience of pain, it's just that English language, we use words so inaccurately in, in or imprecisely. But um, feeling is pretty clearly something else.
0: It's just the English language again you feel pain, focus, say it it as pain, pain. In the four foundations of mindfulness, there is tamas. In tamas, there
2: is the noble eightfold path. How can I note it? There is also the four noble truths. How to note them? Well,
1: you don't really note them. The Dhammas are more a description of the progression of the path or a description of the, um, the their direction. So it's like a, a describing of the qualities that you'll develop
0: and the changes that will take place. Dhammas is not really an object of noting. The
1: five hindrances are, the six senses are, beyond that it's not really... It's not practical in the same way, it's practical in a different way in that understanding these and remembering them and uh, relating them to your practice is good for giving you direction. It's basically the theory that's necessary. All of the, the Dhamma's part is teachings of the Buddha that is necessary to have a
0: good framework on which to allow your practice to develop. There are multiple feelings when meditating.
2: My legs feel extreme pain, sounds. Stomach is rising and falling. So what should I focus on? Should I just focus on what is most prominent at the moment?
1: It doesn't really matter what you focus on. Yes, what's most prominent, and don't be too concerned that you get it right or something like that. Just try and note whatever you experience in the moment. If there are many things and your mind is jumping from one
0: to another you can note distracted or overwhelmed. Those are two notes that might work. That might help. In walking meditation should we only be aware of foot movement and ground contact or can we also be aware of bending the knee or moving the leg forward for example? In in the abstract, all of that is fine, but for specific exercises,
1: we instruct you to focus on the foot. Uh, and ba- basically, it's just to keep it simple and to keep it focused. So you will be aware of many aspects of the movement, but to keep it uh, focused, we just focus on the foot. And as we go through a course, we'll lead a meditator, we'll give them increasingly complex uh, stepping walking steps so what you read in the booklet is only just the first step if you do the at-home course or if you come and do an intensive course then uh, you'll see that we give you further instructions
0: on walking that, that makes it more complex i mean basically with your question
1: it's not about allowing you to be aware of those things, because the awareness happens by
0: itself. But uh, when you make the note, try and make it related to the movement of the foot. If I walk listening to a Tama talk with the phone, would it be better to practice by
2: noting walking or by noting hearing?
1: Well, there's something about... um, I want to say first that walking and listening to a Dhamma talk can be a little bit disrespectful, like, um, because during the walking, you're probably focused on something else. So if it's just walking back and forth or walking in the forest uh, with no goal or something, then it's okay. But, um, really doing trying to do two things if if it comes down to trying to do two things at once one of them being listening to the dhamma it's not quite respectful to the to the buddha's teaching it's something you really should give your whole attention to uh you know and, and then noting things like hearing is appropriate because it's related to your experience of listening but because you're now distracted by walking as well it's going to take your attention away and it's really not the best way to uh, approach listening to the Dhamma. It kind of takes a... It's like people who listen to, to Dhamma talks while they're working or something like that. I, it it seems good because it's a efficient use of your time, but again, not very respectful. And the result is, well, besides potential lack of respect, the, the bigger issue is that um, because of um, the sort of... Distracted and the allowing yourself to not be fully focused on it, that uh, your attitude towards the dhamma and your your understanding of it is going to be limited. So I would say, if you walk, try and just walk and and be mindful of the walking. Uh, when you want to listen to the dhamma, try and make it more uh, time to listen to the dhamma only,
0: and then you can note things like hearing and sitting and all the experiences associated with that experience. I find it easier to note
2: in English, because the words are usually shorter than in my native Spanish. For example, thinking would be pensando, pensando. Does it matter to use the native or the second idiom?
1: Length shouldn't really play a part. It's it's not like you're in a hurry or something like that. You don't need to say it quickly or anything, so pensando isn't long at all, really. I wouldn't be concerned with that, but you're welcome to use English. Uh, I do recommend using your native language. It's uh, over the long term, it's just less distracting. Sometimes using foreign languages seems good at first because it keeps you attentive because it's something that it, it, that it, uh, energizes the mind.
0: But that's only a temporary solution, and it's a bit of a crutch. About what percentage of sitting meditation should be spent on the
2: points of the body and what percent on the rising, falling? It sounds like you
1: might be referring to uh, our our formal courses where we have you do such things. and, And I'm not sure if you've got it right because the noting should be rising, falling, sitting, touching. There's four things there. And So as far as percentage of time, it's one, two, three, four. There's four things that you note. in in succession so there's no question of how much time if it's about how long you take to to note each one of those four um it's just going to depend and i wouldn't try to make it one or the other there's no should there's just however long each one takes if one of them is taking too long then you might want
0: to address as to why that's happening because there can be reasons for that that you might not be noting And I keep saying Gaya, vedana, chitta, dhamma
2: in my meditation and daily activities. I find it helps me in meditation. Would you ex- please explain more of its benefits? There's no great benefit in doing that.
1: You can do as you like, uh, but I would not advise you to do that. Uh, I find it helps me in meditation is problematic because what do you mean by helps you it makes it easier allows you to focus more easily prevents you from getting distracted those all seem like good reasons but they're not good reasons they're contrary to the the purpose of mindfulness mindfulness is about facing our experiences rather than trying to fix them or avoid them so when you're distracted that's not a sign that something's wrong with the meditation it's a sign that something's wrong with the mind and we're not trying to fix that we're trying to see that clearly we're trying to show it to ourselves because as you see it more clearly your mind will be less inclined towards it that's the only way trying to find a way to keep yourself from getting distracted i mean I, we've all been there i've done that when i first started and i had all sorts of ideas about what would help my practice and all sorts of crazy practices because based on my misunderstanding of the teachings uh, but they are misunderstandings and that's not going to help you in the long run might make things easier, but we're not trying to make things easier. Meditation is about facing the hard stuff. So try and actually note what you're experiencing rather than finding a mantra like that. It will uh, harm only harm you in the long run. It can actually lead to great problems as your mind
0: gets mixed up by using conceptual noting like that. In sitting meditation, should we abandon the stomach for every different experience that
2: comes up? Sometimes I only get to note a single rising before something else comes up.
1: Yeah, that's how you do it. Uh, if, if it's a lot, if you're really not able to focus on the rising, falling at all, you might note distracted, distracted. But don't be too
0: concerned about that. There's nothing special about the rising and falling. What is the relationship between impermanence and suffering?
1: Well, one meaning of the word suffering is impermanence, so they're they're very closely related. Mm-hmm. Dukkha, the word we translate as suffering, ka means uh, endure, and du means hard. So something that is hard to endure is dukkha, and that's how the word is conventionally used. But from a Buddhist perspective, it also means it endures uh, with difficulty, meaning it can't endure, meaning something that can't last. So things that don't endure are also dukkha. So the the problem with anything, things that are pleasant especially, is that they are dukkha, that they don't last. It's not that they're painful. It's that there's painfulness associated with it because they, they don't last. They end up being more um, useless or meaningless, um,
0: valueless, worthless, uh, because of their impermanence. Yampana nichang. Yampana chang viparinamadamang.
1: Yampana chang viparinamadamang. Yampanani, Sukangwa Ti What is impermanent is that dukkha or sukha. bhante, It's dukkha. If you read the Anatalakana Sutta, you'll see
0: that anicca, dukkha, and anatta are closely related. Do you have advice on how
2: I can incline people that are greatly suffering to meditate in your tradition? My brother has been diagnosed with a very severe form of anxiety, and he could clearly benefit from it.
1: Yes, the best and really only reliable way is to practice yourself and focus on your own spiritual development. Because the result of that is that the people around you are much, much more inclined to. practice and much much more doesn't mean they actually will incline to it towards it it really depends on their state of mind now people with uh, severe mental illness um you know there's there's a there's a there's a negative that's a negative and that's a sign that there's something negative in their mind so the question is what else is in their mind is there positive qualities in their mind and, and of course quite often the answer is yes it's not by any means vilifying such people but it is also can also be the case where there's not enough goodness in their mind or uh, powerful positive qualities in their mind to counteract those and means they might never be interested in meditation one one good thing is that people who do experience suffering often have uh, the good qualities of mind increased um you know just just as defense right because you have to defend against the mental illness so as at the same time they're cultivating some pretty powerful positive states of uh, of uh you know in, in in defense over the years so it really depends on the individual um, but the best thing you can do is focus on yourself practice for yourself practice for yourself Be kind and, and friendly to everyone And you'll see people gravitating towards you looking for uh, something similar to what you have gained. But they'll only do
0: that if you've actually gained something. And that takes work on your part. Should we have a fixed time for meditation? For example,
2: daily morning 7 a.m., which we should not change often.
1: Yes and no. I mean, that can be helpful. I think in the long term, it's less helpful than having a strong meditation ethic. You know, getting over the excuses and uh, being able to make use of what time you have. Because otherwise, see, if you say, "Okay, every time, every day, seven a.m.," and then you miss it, it can be hard to uh, override any excuses you make at other times of the day. If instead you focus on trying to have the strong worth ethic, then it may be that at 7 o'clock every day you do meditate, but but when it's not at 7 a.m., that's fine, because your ethic tells you, ah, now I have time, let's do it now instead. So I think focusing on building that ethic that allows you to make use of time that you have is more valuable. I mean I guess it's different for me because I'm I, I don't have the same schedule as many people have some people have a 9 to 5 job and then other um, responsibilities besides that so um it can be useful to slot it in in that way uh I, 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 so practically that can be quite useful but just don't lose sight of what's really important and it's not What's really important is not the scheduling. What's really important is the ethic where you're inclined to do it, where you're strong enough to override any sort of uh, procrastination,
0: complacency, laziness, uh, or desire to do something else. When we are noting, is what we are noting always a mental perception? No. There's physical and there's mental. So you can be noting the physical, you can be noting the mental. Does seeing clearly mean to see, clearly see the three characteristics in all experiences? Yes. I feel by meditating, I draw closer to enlightenment. However, I also feel
2: myself becoming unsure why I wish to leave samsara. Is enlightenment worth arriving at? Is practice itself the true purpose? Well, I wouldn't worry. Um,
1: I wouldn't worry about leaving samsara. It's not that easy. It's not like you can slip into it and then regret it afterwards. You should know what you are experiencing, like the uncertainty, which is going to be a cause for stress, and so on. You shouldn't be committed to anything that you don't understand or or don't have experience of. You should focus on what you do know, and when you know that something is bad for you, focus on that. When you know that something's good for you, that's what we're trying to see clearly. So you'll see that things like uh, worry and uncertainty, doubt,
0: that these are, well, they're they're objects of meditation. Ever since noting my feelings are somewhat numb, a loved one passed away, and even
2: though I was crying, inside I was quiet. I thought I'd be more sad than I was. Does this mean I don't care? Yes, this means you don't care.
1: It's just a, sort of an um, incendiary statement. I mean, that's that would probably be an unpleasant thing to hear from many people. The idea that we should care is somehow... You should never care. You should be considerate and you should be pure of mind. You should be friendly. You should be thoughtful. But you shouldn't actually care. That word, um, the only sense in which you should care is, is actually physically caring for people, like doing things that are thoughtful, that are well, careful, which is a different meaning of the word, but uh, caring in the sense of being friendly. But you shouldn't actually care. There's no benefit in actually caring. And it's not necessary the way we think it is. It's necessary much more to be mindful Wise, thoughtful, considerate, conscientious, these are all good words. Caring is not actually what we think it is. You don't benefit, they don't benefit from your tears.
0: Um, They don't benefit from your sadness, no one does. It doesn't make you a better person to be sad.
1: Um, not having those feelings can be a surprise to you. And because of our sort of, you might say, indoctrination, we think, well, I should care. Does that mean I don't care? It does, but no, you really actually shouldn't care.
0: Caring is not the valuable thing we think it is. Thank you, Pante. We've come to the end of the questions we're prepared to ask.
1: Okay, thank you, everyone, for your help. Thanks, everyone, for the great questions good
0: session. Thanks, uh, Chris, Jim, uh, Ulu is here. Is Ulu here? Yes. And Rahid is gone this week. Sadhu. Have a good week, everyone.